This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. How do I make the major decisions of my life? How can I know the will of God in these big decisions of my life that I'm making? And will God get involved? And it's tied to the second question. Believe it or not, one of the most popular questions asked, how do I know who to marry? Wow, that's a good question. So I wanna take you to this Genesis 24 narrative and show you how the Bible intertwines both of those questions. And the same answer for one is the same answer for the next. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. You're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. Today, Pastor Jeff asked the question, who does God want me to marry? This is part of the My Friend Has Questions series. And in answering this question, he gives us some great advice about how to approach any big life decision, not just marriage. Remember, you can check out the whole series on your favorite podcast platform. For now, here's Pastor Jeff to start the message. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. And as you're doing that, let's connect some things. Here's what we believe. We believe that salvation comes uh, by grace through faith. We believe there's nothing we can do to merit or earn salvation that is a gift of God. We also believe that uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. And that it is not pie in the sky, that it's actually objectively provable, that it's an historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead and changed everything. We believe that the unexamined life is not worth living, that any man or woman who earnestly seeks God will find God, and that only Jesus offers a coherent worldview concerning the major questions of our lives, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And we also believe that God has revealed himself in this beautiful thing called the scripture, the word. And then if you and I want to know the will of God and truly interested in living within those parameters, that we will seek the word of God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And as we seek the word, we will find that the precepts of the word of God are not arbitrarily given, but are gold. They're gold. They're the way to live life, the abundant life, which is why we believe this. We believe it's actually possible for two people to get married and love each other for 50 years. We actually believe it's possible for a man and a woman to love in marriage and to have a successful marriage and a successful family. We believe it's possible for children to actually love their parents, not hate them. We believe it's possible to go through the conflict of any relationship and come out as a winner on the other side. We believe in mutual submission of a husband and wife to each other, that each help each other and cause each other to flourish and prosper. And we believe that fathers can love their daughters and mothers their sons and fathers their sons, mothers their daughters. And we believe that a family can be resilient and strong and withstand any storm that the world can throw at it. And we believe this because the Bible tells us this is possible. When we have some non-negotiables in our lives, when we are resolute about certain things, And when we live within the precepts and parameters of God, we set ourselves up for a wonderful, abundant, success-filled life. Now you say, Pastor Jeff, why are you starting like this? Well, 
Your questions amazed me. They fell into two categories. One, objective truths. That is, how do we harmonize a good, loving God with all the pain, suffering, and evil in the world? But I've dealt with those questions so many times, I'm tired of hearing myself. Those are philosophical issues. They are answerable. The scripture definitely speaks to them. In fact, in the first book of the Bible, not, not necessarily in order, but chronologically, the book of Job addresses right off the bat that issue. The question you had, and they're interwoven together. Number one, how do I make the major decisions of my life when I'm faced with a career change, when I'm faced with a promotion, when I'm faced with financial issues? How do I know? How can I, this is a subjective but objective, how can I know the will of God in these big decisions of my life that I'm making, and will God get involved? And it's tied to the second question. Believe it or not, one of the most popular questions asked how do I know who to marry? Wow. That's a good question. So I want to take you to this Genesis 24 narrative and show you how the Bible intertwines both of those questions. And the same answer for one is the same answer for the next. The same way I determine who to marry is the same way I determine all big decisions in my life. So here we go. Here's the story. Abraham in Genesis 24 is dying. He's in his last days. Guess what's on his heart? Guess what he's most concerned about? Not finding the key to the lockbox so he can get all the important papers to give to his wife, Sarah. Not so he can get the deed or the title to the land. The most important thing on his heart before he dies is finding a wife for his son, Isaac. Because he knows what you and I have known for thousands of years, right? Happy wife, happy life. If mama ain't happy, nobody happy. And so Abraham calls his very best friend, his most trusted servant, Eleazar. And he says, Eleazar, I want you to go and do me a favor. Let me read it to you. Verse 20, or, uh, chapter 24, verse 2. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of the house, who ruled over all that he had. So this guy's trusted. And then into verse 4, you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So he calls his most trusted friend, Eleazar, to choose a wife for his son Isaac. And Eleazar, that's a lot of pressure, man. He knows the future of a nation rests on this decision. Now, let me take a time out here because you need to know a few things about Eleazar. Number one, this dude's 85 years old when he's given this, this covenant with, with Abraham. He actually lays his hand on the thigh of Abraham, which is in to, move, to move into an oath or a covenant that is unbreakable. To go back to Abraham's people and to find a wife for Isaac is no small feat because it's 450 miles away before trains and airplanes. So he's got to make a journey on camels to the land of Mesopotamia, 450-mile expedition. He also has to trust that God will go with him. And the other thing amazing about Eleazar is, unless you read the scripture carefully, you won't know that Eleazar stood to inherit all of Abraham's home and land when Abraham died until Isaac came along. And what makes him such a special friend is he says to Abraham, I have served you well, you can trust me. And not only I serve you well, I'm going to commit to serve your son Isaac in the same way that I served you. He could be bitter, but he's not. Those are true friends. That's a sermon in and of itself. So Eleazar, given this challenge to go and find a wife for Isaac, the first thing he does is pray for help. Now, let me just say something here. Most of you Pray for help after you're married for a few years. 
The best time to pray for help is before you even marry anybody. I have a saying with my staff here at CCV. The best time to fire somebody is not to hire them. The best time to divorce somebody is not to marry them. Pray first. Now, just time out. How many of you remember hee-haw? Come on. Hee-haw. Can you believe you? Go to YouTube and watch that show now. It will seriously offend you. The way it treated women, amazing they could get away with that in Hollywood. So this is the number one show in the late 60s and early 70s. America sat around the TV on Saturday nights to watch Lawrence Welk, Hee Haw, Mary Tyler Moore, and Bob Newhart. That was our lives in black and white. HD. <laughs> What's HD? All the women on the show were made to be ditzy, like they didn't know anything. And all the guys were made to be just old country bumpkins. So Junior looks over to his friend and says, my wife just ran off with the best friend I ever had. And the other guy says, how long had you known him? And he said, I never met the guy. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Even then, marriage was so difficult, the only way you could deal with it is to make jokes about it. It's amazing to me how many of you still do not get that. I'm looking, I can see them. <laughs> and you're asking each other. Basically what he's saying, the best friend I ever had is the guy who takes my wife off my hands. Now you got it. <laughs> so Eliezer prays. He knows the value of a good wife. Listen to his prayer in verse 12. Oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are going to come out and draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers... Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now, this is a lot more uh, difficult or complex than it seems. On the surface, it appears simplistic. There's a lot going on here. And by the way, that's exactly the way it happened. It's exactly the way it happened. Rebecca comes out. She gives him water, and then she voluntarily feeds the camels. All of this is the angel of the Lord goes with Eleazar and God works this miraculous scene to say this is the one. Now, the reason this is so relevant, there are four questions every person should ask before they marry somebody and they also apply before any big decision in your life. Four questions. You find them in the Bible, in this text. But can I just say something first of all? There's a group of statistics that you have heard now for about 10 years that somehow Christian marriages are just as likely to divorce as non-Christian marriages. That is fake news. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> the reason those stats were given is because they based it on the census. So anybody who checked the box Christian was considered to be Christian. They've gone back now and they've discovered that if you check the box Christian and you actually attend church, read your Bible and pray, that the chances of your marriage succeeding increases 35% over the rest of the United States. So if you're both really believers and church is important to you and reading the scripture and praying together, you've got a 35% greater chance of a successful marriage. And so here are the four questions you should ask. Number one, you're going to love these, especially you young people. Do my parents approve? Isaac was not the only one involved in this process. It's absolutely pivotal. It's a trusted servant, a friend, Eleazar, a praying father, Abraham, all played a vital role in the selection of the bride. Now, let me tell you why that's important, okay? Let me read to you a poem. Love is like an onion. You taste it with delight. But when it's gone, you wonder, whatever made you bite? 
Love is a funny thing, just like a lizard. It curls up around your heart and then crawls into your gizzard. Love is swell. It's, straw- it's so enticing. It's orange gel. It's strawberry icing. It's chocolate mousse. It's roasted goose. It's ham on rye. It's banana pie. Love's all good things without question. In other words, it's indigestion. When dating begins, we tend to get our hearts in such a flutter that our minds stop functioning. When I met my wife, Robin, the first thought in my mind wasn't this, what kind of person is this? What does she really like on the inside? How is it that I can emotionally connect with her? No, 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 no. When I met her, it was like, whoa, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I got to have this. That's how you think. That's how you, especially guys who are sight-oriented, we're asking all the wrong questions. We ask questions like, what does she look like under all that makeup? Does she dress in an attractive way? Will she worship me like my mommy said she would? Does she look good in a bikini? Those are the questions you ask. And they're all the wrong questions. Listen, I'm passionate about this because my life could have turned out so differently. Because I dated a girl for four years before I met my wife. I was absolutely enamored with her. And she was absolutely the wrong girl. And all my friends and my parents and my spiritual mentors, everyone tried to tell me, but you're not thinking appropriately when you're mesmerized by beauty. And so her whole family was about money and stuff and the right neighborhood and the right job. They claimed and they talked about Christ, but there was no passion for Jesus, no passion for community, no passion for the scripture. They had an extraordinary passion for stuff, for more money, for more goods, and I was getting sucked in so fast. Even my basketball buddies, who were little hell raisers, came to me. Think about it. Here are non-Christians holding a Christian accountable. Because they come and they said, Jeff, what are you doing? I mean, we're sinners going straight to hell. There's no hope for us but you. (laughs) God's got his hand on you. Why are you with this girl? And I really couldn't see it. My grandmother took me in a back room and said, Jeff, this girl, she's evil. (laughs) Grandpa took me in the back room and he said, Jeffrey, She'll suck the life right out of you. Now you know where I got that statement. And my mother would just sit on the bed and cry. She'd just sit on the bed and cry because I would not listen to anyone. Finally, something opened my eyes. My father, who remained silent on every girlfriend I ever had, he never gave comment because he's smart. But he saw the road that I was traveling down about the third and three and a half years. And this was the beginning of the end of my relationship with this girl. My dad took me back in his bedroom and said, I want to ask you something, son. Is this really what you want? And then he said, have you prayed and asked God about this? And I didn't want to answer that because I knew I hadn't prayed because I was afraid if I did pray, he'd say no. And so my dad looked into my heart and he quoted a simple Bible verse to me. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. It was my dad's way of saying this. If you dishonor God before the marriage, don't you dare ask him to rescue it when you're 10 years down the road in trouble. That was his message to me all my life. If you're going to sleep with your girlfriend now and you're going to dishonor God, 
Don't ask him to honor it on the other side. Honor God now with the decisions you make. Make sure that this is someone that has spiritual compatibility. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. So as a father, then I have my own daughter. And I'm going into her bedroom every night. And I'm leaning against the wall. And as a five-year, six-year-old, Sion says, Dad, what are you doing? I said, never you mind what I'm doing. You just keep doing what you're doing. And I'm sitting there praying from the time she was five that God would send her a man that would value her, treat her equally, help her discover her gifts, her, her talents and abilities, and would encourage her to go out and make a difference in her world. Somebody that would lead her spiritually, with whom she would be spiritually compatible. Not just mouth the word that I'm a Christian, but actually lived like he was. Now, some of you young guys that have seen how beautiful my daughter is, do not come to me tomorrow and say, I'm the answer to all your prayers. <laughs> Don't do that, because I'll be suspicious about you. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If that's true, how much good then is a loving, godly father or mother in giving you advice on what you're about to do? Daughters especially, when the second party is your father, here's why you should listen. Because he cares just about as much as you do, if not more, who you marry. He's been praying about this for a long time, which means there's a supernatural impact happening here. That's what, this is what keeps us up at night, young daughters. Worried about who our daughter's going to marry. Our son, we don't worry as much about. Because we can smack him around if he starts messing up. <laughs> we know what to look for. We have this built-in discernment that God gives us. So when you bring him home, it only, it only takes about two minutes for us to look in his eyes and we, we ask questions like, does he look me in the eyes man to man? Does he treat my daughter with a certain sense of gentility? Is he kind? We also have this incredible mechanism that God gave us to know if he's going to be lazy and you're going to end up supporting him all his life or if he's going to be driven, work hard. And give you the things you need. We know that. We can just tell right off the bat. It's a gift. We have a baggage detector too. We know that if this guy's had such a difficult home life that you're going to spend your entire life trying to save him. And the baggage is just so overwhelming that he'll drag you down with him. We know these things. You say, but dads are old. Well, that's right. And Job 12, 12 says, is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? We know all the failures because we made them already. You know, again, I had a quiet father, but a strong father. And he never really spoke a word about the girls that I dated until this incident I just told you. So I knew that when my dad spoke, I better, I better listen. And that changed everything. This is the same father that about three months after the breakup, I met Robin, my wife, who is the most beautiful woman on planet Earth. And I broke up with her. And I came home, and my dad knew something was wrong. And he said, son, what's, what's wrong? He said, well, I, you know, I'm just not ready for this. I just broke up with Robin. My dad looked at me, and he said, son, there's no cure for stupid. <laughs> now you know where I got that comment. I said, what do you mean, dad? He goes, son, that woman is the best woman you're ever going to get. That's the woman that God gave you. I don't know what you're thinking. But do what you have to do. You crawl. You beg. You get in your car and you go back and you tell her it was a mistake. 
And then he walked me through about 20 questions and all the answers were yes. And he said, so why did you break up with her? I said, I don't know. He said, that's not a good answer. And so I did beg and she made me beg and crawl. (laughs) This is the same dad at the wedding day. I'm about ready to walk out on stage with my best man to marry Robin. And he dangles the car keys and he says, if you go now, I'll cover for you. (laughs) That was my dad's way of saying what? When you walk out on that stage, son, that's it. It's a commitment for the rest of your life. Do you understand that? This is the point. When the concern I have today is that because we've lost the unity of the family and because we don't eat together, we watch TV and we go our own ways and we're on the computer, here's what's happening. We don't have those accountability partnerships, those spiritual mentors. Anytime you're making a huge decision in life, if you make it in isolation, chances are it'll be a mistake. But if you have Christian accountability people around you, they can give you an objective truth into your life, blind spots you can't see, then your chances will increase significantly that you will make the right decision when it comes to the college or your career or who you date or your life path. Don't write your parents off just because they're your parents. Especially if your mom and dad are Christ followers, then the Spirit of God will speak through them. Number two is their spiritual compatibility. Now look at the story again. Basically, here's what he says. I'm going to go out to the well. The daughters of the men of the city are going to come down. They're going to draw water. And the one young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, I'm asking you, God, that She would do just that, and then she would also offer to water the camels, the livestock. And then I will know, he says, that this is the one you've shown kindness to my master. Now, why? what's going on here? Hospitality is a primary issue in the first century, but hospitality stops at offering a stranger a drink. The fact that she not only gave drink and water to the livestock means that she has gone above, far above and far beyond what's expected hospitality-wise. And so the reason Eleazar prays that prayer is he's looking for someone whose heart has been changed by the heart of God that they've become a generous person. Greed surrenders to generosity at the point of conversion. Somewhere she had become a generous person because of the way of God in her heart. Now, there's something else too. The reason Eleazar is looking for this is he's looking for spiritual compatibility. Isn't it true that when you marry someone, you don't just get the wife? You get this thing called the mother-in-law. There's a whole slew of weird people that come with this bride or with this groom. I remember hearing the story about the guy who was walking down the beach and he found a, a lamp and he rubbed it three times and a genie popped out and he was so elated. But the genie said, hold on a minute. I'm a different kind of genie because everything you wish for, your mother-in-law gets double. So he said, I want a million dollars. He said, fine, here's a million, but your mother-in-law gets two. He said, I want a big house down at Newport Beach. Okay, fine, but your mother-in-law gets two. And then he got a smile on his face and he looked at the genie and said, I wish somebody would beat me half to death. I asked my wife once, I said, why? I'm serious. I make jokes and stuff, but I know, I know that I'm, I'm so blessed. And I asked Robin once in a serious tone, probably when we were in our mid thirties, why did you marry me? Why did you marry me? Was it sympathy love? You know, was it rescue love? And here was her answer. Straight faced. She quoted the NIV translation of Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. <laughs> because I'm younger than she is. And she said, I knew that you were younger, so I figured I could train you, and it's taken me 30 years to do that. <laughs> There's no doubt that my wife and her family have impacted me. They do. 
My father-in-law has had a great impact on my life. You know, I look back and what if my life had turned and I'd married this other girl? Where would I be today? You think your decisions don't matter? She's been married and divorced four times now. Not that that's some kind of stigma or it's just, it proves that there's, she's going to have a tough time holding down relationships. And part of it is because no man will ever be able to give her what she wants. The world is not enough. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Some Christian men are just odd. (laughs) Oddness is no respecter of person. It can be in the Christian and the non-Christian. So what parents tend to do is, he's a Christian, that's the one you need. Well, you don't know that. You don't know that. But even if all these things line up, if you wanna know if you're ready, there are four quick questions and then I'll finish. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.